I am speaking to you from my home office in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. It's a warm August afternoon in this most cursed year of 2020. My voice is being recorded by a high-end microphone and converted into digital bits that are then compressed by an audio editing program. The file containing my compressed voice will then be uploaded to our website via a worldwide interconnected network where it will be read and processed by a variety of other websites whose sole purpose it is to collect feeds and present them in easily searchable, downloadable packages so that you, dear listener, can access them on devices in your home office, maybe, or in your car, or on the tiny phone you carry in your pocket. You may be listening to this on the day it's released, or maybe it's five years from today. But if you're hearing me, and I mean, I assume that you are, You are on the receiving end of a series of incredible internet-based technological innovations that have firmly connected this medium, the podcast, to the 21st century. And yet, we currently spend our time together every two weeks talking about a poet-playwright who lived and worked in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Of course, he is very much a product of his time, just as this podcast is very much a product of ours. Shakespeare's audience of Elizabethan groundlings upwardly mobile in a way few other generations in the history of Europe anyway have ever been, paying their shilling for a piece of the action, is not much different from us right now. Technologically mobile, accessing information that has been democratized and is accessible all around us in ways never before seen in the history of the world. Shakespeare too, like the nebulously defined content creators of today, crafted his message, his art, for those people in front of him. So it maybe shouldn't be surprising that we are able to make sense of his work in this way. But every once in a while it hits me that we are able to disseminate our thoughts on William Shakespeare using technology that would have likely had us burned at the stake if we'd raved about it in the 1590s. Our episode today is focused on a different kind of technology, one that took last century by storm and defined it in such a startling way that I don't think it's hyperbolic to compare it to, say, the spinning jenny or the printing press in terms of importance to human civilization. I'm talking, of course, about film, cinema, the big and small screen. And the intersection of film and Shakespeare is a fascinating one because they are so closely entwined, more closely than I ever knew they were. And that seems so fitting. The impact of cinema on our culture is not at all unlike the impact of playhouses on Elizabethan England. Mass entertainment, catering to the tastes and whims of the public, available to anyone who wants it for a fairly reasonable price. Producers behind the scenes trying to capitalize on those trends in order to make the best return on investment they can manage. Creatives pouring their hearts and souls into work that could prove immensely popular and put food on their table for months at a time, or which could crash and burn and send them back to the drawing board, hopeful that the next big thing was right around the corner. The Globe and the Nickelodeon are really not that dissimilar when you break it down. What difference exists are largely of a technological nature. Shakespeare did not have the benefit of dolly shots to render explicit Richard III's existential horror the night before Bosworth Field, or CGI to accurately capture the breadth of Henry V's Agincourt, or As You Like It's Forest of Arden. Film has this whole visual language that's developed alongside it, growing up with it as it simultaneously comes to define it in a way that we all instinctively recognize whether we ever studied film or not. I mean, we all know that Dutch angles are anxious and that vertigo shots denote paranoia and fear, that soft lenses are romantic and dreamy, and crossfades indicate the passage of time. Now, we'll never know how Shakespeare himself would have written Othello if he'd known about the use of chiaroscuro in German Expressionism, or what kind of changes he'd envisioned for the witty banter between Katerina and Petruchio or Beatrice and Benedict if he'd been able to use rapid-fire over-the-shoulder close-ups in order to deliver them. 
But thankfully, at least for our purposes today, the history of film is chock-a-block full of people who played around with these exact things, and we who are fans of both film and Shakespeare are the better for it. So we'll talk about how Shakespeare's plays offer a perfect, natural starting point for film innovation in the earliest days of cinema, when silent spectacles intended as promotional material for stage plays gave way to fully formed and well-thought-out filmed versions of entire plays. We'll look at how early talkies defined the way we think about Shakespearean language on screen, and how modern attempts at making Shakespeare more accessible have altered those assumptions. We'll see how the filmic innovations of Hollywood's golden age created the necessary underpinnings of the bardolatrous reverence, new wave realism, and postmodern irony needed for late 20th and early 20th century interpretations to play with, react to, and build upon. We'll also look at critical reaction to some of the best examples of Shakespeare on screen from the last 120 years, and maybe we'll even try to imagine where Shakespeare on screen will go in the next 120 So, yes, dear listener, today we will be using 21st century technology to discuss the intersection of 17th century drama and the defining cultural medium of the 20th century film and television. I'm sure it will be a spirited discussion. We hope you'll enjoy it. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. I'm Eden. And together we are the Bix. Mm-hmm. And today we are here to discuss film and Shakespeare, the intersection of film and Shakespeare, Shakespeare on screen. Yes. Um, yeah. It is, it is a big topic. It is kind of you. a big topic. Uh, we kind of walked into it and we're like, oh, maybe we'll pick something really narrow. I think on our last episode we talked about how maybe we record uh, something just focused on international film maybe and like pick a few individual movies and talk about them. But we figured that was a little too niche and we didn't have the expertise on the and given. And also it's, it's a little tricky to find... Uh, international yeah, film copies, versions, yeah, which, which yes. kind of hindered our ability to do research. Absolutely. So, um, so that's part of it. Yeah. Uh, so instead, what you're going to get today is kind of a, kind of a survey course. It's going to yeah. be kind of an overview. Um, we relied very heavily on a uh, book by. Maurice Hindle called Shakespeare on Film, yep. uh, clearly enough. Uh, second edition from 2015 um, that gives a very good overview of uh, the transformation of the medium and Shakespeare's uh, interplay with it, yep. um, as well as you know giving some critical analysis on some of the individual um, films that have come out, um, some more contextual pieces around how the medium has changed and uh, how the the individual bright spots the the Olivier's the Branas the Branas and then what have you uh, really focusing on their impact on Shakespeare on film as well yeah. so um, yeah the way we kind of structured it I think too because uh, we're we're kind of recording this at the tail end of our holidays and uh, rather than both of us reading the same text we thought we would make it interesting and I kind of tackled the history part and Aiden kind of tackled the the critical essays mm-hmm. on various films so. Um, Aiden doesn't really have a, a film background, and yeah. I certainly haven't read any of the theory behind any of these films. So, And also, we should mention that we haven't watched all of these films yes. either. So there are some... The, the stuff that we're going to talk about, at least one of us has seen yeah. the films in yeah. question. But there are films that we are going to mention that we haven't seen because they're hard to track down. 
Um, but we've managed to find quite a few links, especially for the silent films. Um, yes. So we'll put those in. Or if you're in the public domain on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. obviously, public domain, because they were never copywritten. Copyrighted? <laughs> copywritten. They might, some of them might have been copywritten. Copy- in the 20s and stuff like that? Yeah, they yeah. might have been. But yeah, uh, but they're, they're in the public domain. Now, yes, so, and... Yes. Um, so yeah, there's just a brief caveat there. And also, this is kind of an Anglo-centric view of yes. the Shakespearean canon and, and a very Hollywood-focused. Yes. And even at that, it's not, it's it's very um, highbrow, I guess. Because yeah. none of the, Hindle didn't go into a topic of interest for both Aiden and I, which is like the 90s adaptations of Shakespeare yes. that we both grew up with and love so much the, like the, the loose ones that we've talked yeah, about 10 things house. i hate about you or she's all that no not she's all that she's the man she's the man she's the man and lion king even the lion king yeah like yeah. those those aren't really discussed which i think is a shame because i think they they add something valuable and they say something important about the way shakespeare fits into our cultural yeah milieu yeah. yeah for sure um but this is not going to be about that and yes. and yeah like i said very anglo-centric because um um those of you who have studied film history know that Bollywood has been, from the beginning, a powerful powerhouse, Mm -hmm. to be redundant, (laughs) um, in the film world. And obviously there was quite an extensive German film industry before the wars or in between the wars. Russia had its own industry, France and Italy. They all had film industries that dealt with various aspects of what we're going to be talking about and even did Shakespeare very early yes, on. absolutely. Um, but we're not talking about But we aren't today. talking about that. We're <laughs> kind of focusing on, on that Anglo-centric um, English language from English or American filmmakers yeah, which, and producers. Which so. I think is a good way to, to kind of approach it for, for this kind of survey because if you do dive into uh, the international uh, cinemas of the world and their interpretations of Shakespeare, it just opens up a brand new suite of questions whereas yeah. here it's a given that the language at least is Shakespeare's language. Maybe yeah. not through and through and yeah. you know 100% faithful in any way. In fact, that's something we'll talk about quite a bit I think is is what gets cut when you adapt for the film. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is in, it's in English. It is when the language is there, it is Shakespearean language for the most part. Um, and we that, are the inheritors of the culture that yeah, birthed exactly. Shakespeare too. So it does kind yeah. of, I mean, leaving aside questions of colonialism, which I think that, we'll that'll be a separate later, topic yeah. that we will, separate topic that we will get into um, in another episode. But yeah, um, having said all of that, uh, should we dive into some of this history? Let's, let's do it, Lens. Once more into the breach, dear friends! Once more! I'll close the wall up with our English dead! Okay. So silent film is really the f- the first place that obviously you start with cinema because that's, that's where it where starts. It starts. Yep. Um, the earliest film adaptation of a Shakespearean play was from 1899. This is... I, I, I don't know if it's the first first film or if it's the first known film i should preface yeah, that yeah exactly but it it's the the, the earliest one that over, exists yeah. today it's from 1899 and it's a scene from the play king john mm-hmm. um and it purely was meant as like a like a commercial like a teaser yeah. that was playing at the local nickelodeon that would get you to go watch the play down the street kind yeah. of thing right yeah. so and it was billed as that it was like come and see the play before you see the play mm-hmm. using all the stage sets and and props and everything and it was literally the scene that that um is on youtube that we've linked in our um on our website is the king john death scene mm-hmm. and it's really interesting i watched it a couple of days ago aiden i don't know if you watched it nope it's like a minute long yeah Super short. Yeah, and it's it's 
really interesting to just see how it's staged because literally it's just the play being put on as if it's on stage you can see the floorboards you see all of it it's awkward because film was so new that it didn't really know how to handle it no and like the actors on stage like are looking at the camera before like you could tell there was someone behind the camera who yelled action and they were all looking and then they're like okay right like it's very different from the way that you know it's not naturalistic at all but it's um it is still interesting to see how that's done And, and you can see that it's drawing on theatrical traditions of vaudeville and other things that were happening mm-hmm. at the time this is from england yeah you, yeah yeah and the the gesticulations which are very common to silent film obviously yeah. because um That's how you get information across. exactly yeah. when yeah. you don't have words so yeah. you can tell that the actor portraying king john is speaking lines but mm-hmm. obviously you can't hear them and it doesn't it doesn't track with the play necessarily because they're yeah, there's other characters who seem to be there. His son is there. King John's son is present, mm-hmm. which I don't remember being in the play. Um, I thought he was the kid who jumped off the thing and died when he wasn't supposed to die. I don't remember now. They thought someone killed him. Maybe, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Either way, it's uh, mm. it's um, it's an interesting look at how early filmmakers were conceptualizing putting Shakespeare on film, and, and it served a very different purpose. This was not meant to... Be the play. Um, be the play at yeah. all. It was meant to be like it's an advertisement. advertisement. Yeah, it's yeah. it's like a little YouTube mid-roll ad that yeah. like pops up when you're, <laughs> Wow, you know. we need to bring the 21st century. <laughs> well, yeah, but it is, right? And, it, well, and it's literally just meant to funnel you into the, the Drury Lane Theater down yeah. the road or well, whatever. And it's interesting because we've kind of come back to that in a lot of the 21st century productions, you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, the yeah. Stratford Festival. You know, yeah. they literally just film the stage. Yeah. Um, Hamilton, which we've mentioned in a few yes. previous episodes. Uh, you know, it's literally just filming the stage production yeah. and then releasing it on video yeah um and it's 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 an approach now mm-hmm. it's just one of many and it's kind of funny that we've kind of come full, full circle, circle back to just like yeah this is it's limited and it's different and it's not quite what uh you would get in a full film version mm-hmm. but you get a good meal sorry for the <laughs> simpsons reference there uh but it's uh it's kind of an in-between thing yeah and it's it's interesting they kind of arrived at that uh, first thing off the bat they're mm-hmm. like well we can't quite do the full Shakespeare experience you don't get the full stage experience but we can we can tease you we can yeah. we can give you a hint of what it's like well and it's, yeah. yeah and and I think um the fact that I think it's BFI the British Film Institute said that this was a fairly common practice at the time using them mm-hmm. as advertisements yeah um that it's it's kind of come back to that but in it for different reasons like we're um, we've talked a little bit a few weeks ago. I think we we talked about um, uh, with the pandemic and people being stuck at home and not being able to go to live theater anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one draw for some of these theater festivals, yep. um, like the Stratford Festival, who put quite a few of their productions on on YouTube to yep. stream yep. Um, and had like watch parties and stuff. So it was mm-hmm. kind of communal, but yeah, just physical distanced, you know, and. Uh, and it, yeah, you're right. Absolutely, it is. It is really interesting that it. But it, they're totally different when you when you see. Um, I'm thinking of the Richard II. Oh, that we watched, uh, that we watched with, with David, David Tennant, Tennant. Yep. and and some of the Stratford Festival ones where they have like crane shots and they have yes. like they're still using yes. filmic techniques. Yes. Whereas this, just because it's 1899 and the camera weighed a ton, <laughs> like the camera is stationary, everything yes. is done with one shot, and that that holds true for most of silent film. Yep. In fact, um, the next big uh, kind of shift. Yeah, yeah, is is um, 
in the middle part of the 19, I think in 1908, actually, 1908 to 1912 was mm-hmm. when um, a Brooklyn-based film company called Vitagraph mm-hmm. released, between those, in those four years, released like 14 Shakespearean productions and uh, and kind of hit the pinnacle with their version of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in 1909. And still with the same kind of idea, you know, one camera and long shots, which um, really do harken back to like a theatrical production there's no cuts there's no close-ups it's Mm -hmm. very much the camera stays stationary and the scene plays out over a period of 30 seconds or 40 seconds or something um but they did something interesting um with midsummer in that they uh they've started to use some in-camera effects Ah. like uh double exposures um Mm. some things like where where uh like stop motion Oh, Almost cool. where they would have like Titania would wave her wand and somebody would pop up. Yes, and, yes. And there, there are things like that that are kind of the first time that like an artistry is put into a Shakespearean yeah, production. Yeah. So, so, and also it was not done on stage. This was filmed outside. This was yeah. filmed in a, in a garden in Brooklyn. Um, so it has that kind of pastoral feel mm. that Midsummer has mysterious, yeah, yeah. obviously filmed fit, yeah. in the middle of the day because they didn't they have, needed they needed yeah. <laughs> all this light to be able to film it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. That's about 11 minutes long or 14 minutes long or something mm-hmm. again linked in our description so if you want to go watch it um, I would highly recommend it. it it is really interesting to see it because it 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 is a really marked shift from 1899 to 1908 even or 1909 yeah. like in that 10 year period yeah, um, yeah there's yeah, there's yeah. more thought being put into how are we going to portray this play and yes it is the whole play basically mm-hmm. um, with lots of inner titles that kind of explain the things that are harder to get across. So you really, you're just hitting like the high melodrama points of, uh, or the the moments people might recognize anyways. Yeah. They haven't seen the play. The, the, the opening scene where the lovers are parted and then, you know, Titania and, um, Romeo and Juliet, you might do the death scene or something like that. Yeah. Or, or the rude mechanicals when, when bottom gets his head. Yes. Like those are scenes that, that are portrayed here. And that, I think that signals like, it's a choice that's being made on the part of the film Mm -hmm. maker to show, what can they show and what can they tell? Yeah. What are the limitations of the medium and, and how can we maybe move beyond that with some of the special effects, I guess, the yeah, crude the special time. effects. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, which is really cool. Uh, finally, we have, um, heading into like the, the teens, there's, um, we, we start to get a little bit of um, foreshadowing of some of the later things that are going to come through things like German Expressionism. There's a, a version of Richard III, which I wasn't able to find, but I think has been released on DVD in maybe by the British Film Institute. I can't remember. But it's a version of Richard III that really borrows, or not borrows because it hadn't been invented yet. Uh, kind of paves the way. Paves the way for like a, the German Expressionism use of light and shadow. I mm. think the scene that was described in Hindle's book was, um, obviously because I haven't seen it, I'm relying on him to be accurate here. Uh, the scene where Richard III, uh, where Lady Anne is killed, mm. and the scene is lit so that Lady Anne is in perfect, crisp, clear focus in like the middle foreground, mm. and off to the side, kind of in the background, is like a shadowy servant figure who brings her the poison goblet, uh, and then in the then far Richard. background, there's like an archway or something where you see Richard come in backlit, so he's completely shadowed. You can't see him, but you you know it's him you know because it's him. of the hunchback yeah, and everything. Yeah, of course, yeah. And as soon as Lady Anne dies, he kind of shrinks back and and fades back through the doorway which is like reminds me a lot of like 
Nosferatu or Metropolis, like some of the, the things that are being done there with light and shadow and, and different planes. The mise-en-scene is kind of very yes, much right. a part of that, yes. which is, again, another shift. We're not looking at, this isn't a stage yes. where like all of the action is focused on capturing the whole stage as, yeah. as you would need to if you're just capturing the stage even experience. though we're capturing quite a wide plane the your attention is being drawn from one part of the screen to another and in a really interesting way that is not necessarily it's kind of stage but it's also very film in in it in a weird way and then uh, the last big innovate, innovation, I guess, that I want to talk about is um, the inclusion of some interesting uh, adaptations. Is mm-hmm. that a good word? Sure. For it. Uh, there's a 1920 version of Hamlet starring Asta Nielsen, who was like the biggest film star in Germany, I think, at the time. Um, but this was a Swedish production or Danish production. I can't remember. Either way, a woman portraying Hamlet, not as a woman necessarily but i believe as an androgynous hamlet Mm. who is besotted with horatio horatio is in love with ophelia so they made some textual changes to the play that make it very very interesting to watch it's Mm -hmm. like a two hour long um production and totally silent totally silent yeah and i think that is kind of foreshadowing some of the bolder choices that are being made in the middle and later part of the 20th century mm-hmm. but again like you know european film was doing things that hollywood wasn't hollywood yeah. still felt very much uh, traditional you think 1920 is still you know charlie chaplin doing keystone cops maybe not keystone he wasn't <laughs> at keystone at that point yes. but but that kind of you know that kind of humor is what we're still dealing with in that kind of production yeah an approach to film an approach to film so to have a film that is going to gender bend a little bit in 1920s um and and to do that with shakespeare's source material Mm. um is kind of interesting now there's traditions in the in stage productions obviously going back to shakespeare's time of men playing women's roles so i mean it's not like this is completely unheard of but for it to be brought into film um so early on I think it's kind of interesting. It really does make you wonder what would have happened in German cinema had World War II not, yes. you know, decimated the industry. I think well, it, in Germany. Uh, well, yes, yes, <laughs> touche. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, uh, I guess a question I wanted to ask you, Aiden, is um, mm-hmm. why do you think Shakespeare was so popular with silent film? I mean, aside from the yeah. obvious answer that there was no copyright claim able to be yes, made. So yeah, like you could just easily yeah. pull a Shakespearean play off the shelf and yeah. and put it on. Yeah, well I think it's I I think we talked about this earlier uh off off camera as it were uh that you know everybody kind of knows the stories especially mm, something like yeah. Hamlet, you know, even if it is a silent film and you're not getting the full uh flavor of the text, um the story is well understood enough that yeah. you you can tell it through the the pantomime of silent film mm-hmm. uh, and and still tell a really interesting story you know you can have a cool thing with a ghost or you can have uh the fencing scene could be really fun or the whole thing about revenge and everything yeah comes exactly across. exactly like yeah that, that's such a visceral emotional state yeah. and, and the characters have such uh visceral emotions and it's such a roller coaster that you can tell a lot of that through facial expressions through the close-up shot through mm-hmm. these other avenues that you have um that you don't have in a stage production right you can you you can kind of branch off into a, a different avenue, I think. So I, I think that's a, it's a really good question. Cause like, 
yeah, you think of Shakespeare, you think of the language. That's so, exactly so these what I was early say. silent ones. Yeah. It's like, why would they do Shakespeare? And I think, yeah. Well, but I guess that, that does, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the time um, we've mentioned on the podcast before we were in Germany and we saw a production of Midsummer Night's Dream mm-hmm. in Bremen, yeah. like community theater production. Yeah. And of course, we speak no German. Nine. Nine. <laughs> and, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we still understood it, but, you know, it's, I would like to know, I would like to be fluent enough in another language to be able to, to see how the language plays out in another language. Yeah. But it's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, do, do you need to, do you need to read Shakespeare in its original Klingon, uh, in the original English, <laughs> um, in order to really understand it? I think there are a lot of people who would say, yes, you do. And mm-hmm. and, and, um, and some of them are filmmakers we're going to be talking about later today who um are pretty yeah pretty they're hewed to the language and yeah and and like it, yeah. you think of the people like trevor nunn and the the royal shakespeare company starters who were like the meter is yes. the thing Pad- like that's Paramount, you know yes and and or even you know kenneth brana who who branches out and does some of that stuff yeah. too right like i mean it's the faithfulness to the text is what's important so silent film just seems antithetical to that but yeah. it works really well i think I enjoyed a lot of the silent films a lot more than some of the, the actual like BBC productions that are very faithful yes, to the text yes. and everything. Yeah, and we'll we'll come back to those because they are a complete. They're basically the exact opposite of the the uh, silent film where it's it's almost entirely focused on characters speaking yeah. in the text and yeah. there's there's really no room for. Uh, spectacle or nuance in the in the performance and what have you. So, well, it wasn't part of the mandate either. But yeah, exactly. It was focused we'll, on. It had a different a different goal. Whereas, the, especially, I I, I want to watch that nineteen twenty version. I yeah, know you. We have the link, so we'll provide that in yeah. in the, the Hamlet one. You mean? Yeah, in Hamlet. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I really want to see that one uh, now because it, it sounds interesting to see how they would have handled mm-hmm. a full thing. But mm-hmm. it's definitely a historic moment. The other um, thing that that I wanted to bring up too is um, the Hindle mentions in his book that. Uh, it's kind of ironic that people gravitated towards Shakespeare for this newfangled medium mm-hmm. because they thought it would class up the joint. Yeah. Which yeah. is so funny to me because Shakespeare was such lowbrow at the time that <laughs> yeah. he came out. And now he is, I mean, the that's the great that's irony still, of, yeah. of Shakespeare, right? Yeah. But um, I think people thought that if you put on a brilliant Shakespeare, filmed Shakespeare production, um, it would somehow legitimize this yeah. new industry and this well, new medium. And it's it's something that's happened... To this day, I mean, even like you're talking about the golden age of television, you know, in the 2000s and and 2010s, and then you have the hollow crown, you know, cementing it really, you know, giving that, that BBC era of um, a check mark saying like, yes, you can, you can film in HD with movie stars in the lead roles and like it's Shakespeare. So that makes Mm -hmm. it okay. It's, Mm -hmm. it's something that's legitimizing television in a way that, uh. You know, we would we would kind of expect for a mm-hmm. new medium. Maybe you know, TikTok Shakespeare will be next, Lindsay. Oh, I hope so. That would be amazing. You, you can pave the way. I yeah, right. Nothing will come of nothing. Let's move on to the golden age. Yeah, let's do. It. Um, this brought in a new problem, which we kind of touched on with the silent film part. That how do you get people who are just now learning how to listen to film? Because you have to remember, we take this for granted, but those early audiences were so blown away by the sound that they were hearing. It changed the way they interacted with film entirely. Mm-hmm. And Aiden, you were saying something really interesting um, before we started the podcast about how um, there was a, a film version from 2000 or something that a film that came out that completely rewrote the language of film. And it was really jarring for people 
oh yeah, it was Speed Racer. And it, it wasn't, it didn't necessarily, okay. re- I've never seen it, but no. I, I read an, uh, an interesting interview with the Wachowskis uh, who directed the film. Uh, and they, they said they they, re- they approached that film as a kid's movie uh, because it allows you to explore new avenues of, of uh, film grammar and okay. film construction, you know, yeah. because when you're a kid, and their point was a really good one, is that when you're a kid, you just accept whatever you see and that's yeah. the vernacular that you take with you and, and into future viewings and, and your own creative processes. Um, and so they're like, when we when you do a kid's movie, you can make it whatever you want. You think right. about how silly and goofy some of the kid's movies are. You think about how rote and formulaic the Disney kid's movies are and yeah. that they have a specific style with, you know, a, a, an arc and, and everything's very um, specific and, and uh, regimented. You know, they, they did Speed Racer as like a way to just let's Blow try something up. new. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and you can only really do that in a kid's film because by the time you make a movie just for adults, they have it in their mind of what a movie's supposed to look yeah. like and you can't really change that. So yeah, interesting to come into the 30s here and say like, okay, we've got a new half of the yeah. experience here. What are we going to do with it? Yeah. Uh, Lindsay, tell me, what did they do with it? Well, I read this yeah, <laughs> I, I think the biggest thing is, is that um, when you're trying to get an audience that that is still grappling with listening in the first place mm. to to grapple with that this particular language, which is yeah. difficult already, yeah. is kind of tricky. And um, some of the films, like we've mentioned the 1929 Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Taming of the Shrew, which is the first full-length Shakespearean talking film that was, okay. that was produced. Yeah. Um, in English anyway. Yeah. And uh, what they did is they, they, I mean, that's only an hour long, just yeah. over an hour long. So they cut down significant portions of the text in order to, like most producers do with Taming of the Shrew, they want to highlight the Petruchio-Kate yes. dynamic. And because you have Pickford and Fairbanks or Taylor and Burton, yes. you know, you want to focus on that stormy, tempestuous relationship. So the language kind of gets cut around that yes um and they also you said here in the notes that uh they mixed in some vernacular they did yes and that that's something else that um some of the language is left intact and some of it is not necessarily you know it's not like you got transatlantic accents and you know (laughs) wings at the well they do have wings at least in the taming of the shrew version but um i would definitely pay to hear that you're absolutely right but it's it's that was an interesting choice that that is made and it continues to be made in film productions to this day there are still some that will go the vernacular route or at least i don't want to say dumb it down but they do make it a little bit more they might paraphrase it or something yeah Yeah, exactly the other thing that you see in the 30s is that you start to see the hiring of big name film actors big stars yeah so there was a version of uh, midsummer from 1935 mickey rooney played puck yeah. he was like 10 or something yeah yeah uh james cagney played bottom which i can't imagine but i kind of want yeah, to see it could now be, could be interesting um yeah so you that that's an interesting move instead of seeing you know a stage actor in the 1899 yeah, exactly. john you have a stage actor you know? Doing his stage thing yeah. in front of a camera, yeah. Ellen Terry on stage or whatever being yeah. filmed. Uh, not that, that would that happen. <laughs> but, you know, you've got film actors playing Shakespearean roles, which yeah. is now commonplace. That's yeah. something, with the exception of the the 1970s well, uh, BBC production. I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point because to this day, um, it's kind of like when you see like Tom Hiddleston, 
doing you know Hal mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like oh but he's he's Loki you know like yeah. yeah I think a lot of those barriers have been broken down especially through Ian McKellen Patrick Stewart like these guys who do you know Star Trek the next generation and then they'll go and do a, a run of of uh Othello or something like yeah, that in the West End or the, whatever exactly yeah. yeah and so a lot of those barriers have just broken down well I mean, we saw Jude Law performing Henry the Fifth and stuff. Yeah. you know it's 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 those those kind of distinctions don't matter as much anymore. Um, there's a draw across things. Um, I think it's still difficult to break into television and film from an acting perspective uh, compared to stage, where you know yes. there's there's a lot of more. Variety but and but stuff. when you think about um, that, doesn't tend to happen in the United States as much as in England. Because yeah, in in maybe. the states, yes, you might have actors who went to Juilliard or they they did yeah. some fine art drama degree somewhere in England it's way more common and and this has been the case since the 50s for you know actors who studied with the Royal Shakespeare Company or the Old Vic to then transition into film and television and still maintain very very um uh prolific careers in all medium yep all media um and that seems to be a very particular english or british way of doing things. yeah well i mean think about we i mean we've watched a bunch of american productions for mm-hmm. not for this episode but we've watched a bunch of yeah, american podcast, productions yeah. you know yeah but i mean yes michael fassbender as Mac- macbeth but you also have robert downey jr yeah in uh, richard the third denzel washington exactly in much ado i mean like there, there are and brana did this a lot was bringing big yeah. name actors yeah. i mean ethan hawk in the 2000 hamlet you know yeah. like there, there is still um an appetite for that or at least there was in the 90s and 2000s i think i think that was kind of the the golden age of crossovers between you know popular uh film actors and shakespeare and you know they're they're kind of continue that tradition of yeah um the british aspect of of cutting across i still i still think my point stands though that those aren't Robert Downey Jr. is not known as a stage actor. Sure, yes, yes. And yeah, Denzel, no, yeah, a d- to a yep. degree, yes, he he has done Broadway and and stuff like that. That is certainly not unheard of. You, yeah. when I was in New York two two years ago, I think there were quite a few Broadway plays at that time off Broadway with big name actors. Denzel actually was in a play. We were going to yeah. go see it, yeah. but um, but this is the first time that really you get um big name film actors in. Like doing Shakespeare. Yes, yes, right? in the thirties. Seriously, yes. yeah, it's setting up. Yeah, um, I found an interesting quote in the in the Hindle book. Uh, he quoted or or paraphrased Laurence Olivier, who kind of comes into yes. his own in this period. Yeah. Olivier said that uh, Shakespeare could never be filmed, which is an interesting thing because he eventually he went, went on to basically yeah. define Hollywood Shakespeare films in the nineteen yeah. forties. But um, I think that's an interesting perspective because mm-hmm. um i don't know what else you do with shakespeare unless it is just seeing it performed live if yeah. that's what he means but well exactly yeah i think that was kind of the traditionalist bent in, yeah. In him, yeah um you also see a rise in the the 30s of politically anxious shakespeare yes, which is the sure. first time that this kind of happens where you see shakespeare not portrayed in um a it kind of anachronistically maybe mm-hmm. or or with an emphasis on um exposing the tensions that people were feeling in their their own lives so yeah. you have um the rise of fascism and nazism in europe contributing to the the anxieties that are seen in films world war ii obviously impacts that as well yeah. um anti-communist propaganda in the united states which kind of a little bit more into the 40s and 50s yeah. um 
the, those kind of necessitated some really interesting choices for filmed Shakespeare as well. So yeah. a production of Julius Caesar is going to feel very different if it's filmed in 1935 as opposed to being filmed in 1925, yes. right? Yeah. Um, well, and, and uh, uh, Olivier's... Uh, Henry V is probably the, the high watermark because yeah, it was it was explicitly a propaganda film right. for English victory yeah. over you know those dastardly Europeans Absolutely. right you know and it emits like huge chunks of of the story and uh, lines that make Henry V anything but the perfect yeah. monarch you know it, it literally set him up as like here's your perfect king who's going to lead you into into victory um, against yeah, yeah Absolutely. the bad guys right and that that really does speak to the prevailing attitude which is very differential to Shakespeare yes and very differential to his version well, but, of the stories but is it because it's actually like bastardizing his stories because his stories have all this nuance especially in, in like Henry V is in the so... full text absolutely but I think yeah, so but I think the you're... themes and everything that are that are being brought out if you're looking at you it's, have to omit a lot of the themes if you're not gonna if you're only gonna do like 30% of the play it's it's presented as um, very much we are we are going to use received pronunciation. We are going to, um, <laughs> yeah. We're not going to okay. deviate that much from the text we are speaking. It's going to be very staid, and and the effect that that has is noticeable, right? We've mm-hmm. commented on it too. When you watch Olivier, we we just watched Richard the Third a few months ago. Yeah. Um, it feels it's not naturalistic. No, at all. At all. It doesn't and even that, attempt to be. It's it's like a weird bridge between stage and the the kind of yes. audience friendly Shakespeare that we get in the the next half of the twentieth century. Yeah. Um, so it it feels very much um, more deferential. I think is the only word I can think of. Yeah, well, I, I think maybe not deferential. Maybe it's more just like it's still wedded to a previous yeah. understanding of Shakespeare and a previous interpretation of Shakespeare sure. it hasn't quite yet I'll reached grant you that. the but I think that's generally for film was still adapting absolutely at, throughout that as well it's not like there was a bunch of hyper realist no drama and, and so this is why this, this is why when you look at film history you get you know really exciting artists like Hitchcock who come in and do like really innovative things with the medium yeah. that start to shake things up yes exactly this you know, in the 40s and 50s, with the exception of, of certain niche films, yeah, like yeah. film noir did did some stuff like that. You had, you know, Westerns were starting to create their own language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you had other world cinema influences as well. Those things are kind of separated from like the traditional Hollywood, which feels like watching a, a you know, two camera sitcom or whatever yeah yeah, yeah essentially. versus a prestige television single camera yeah, yeah, game of thrones so, or something yeah, right yeah. which is where we end up it's a bad analogy because <laughs> because it, when you hit it into the mid-century and you start getting you know uh, crowd pleasing mass cinema audience shakespeare yes, yes, as Kindle calls it yeah yeah it's it's kind of um, lowering the brow a bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't like saying that because it's not fair, but but it, it kind of does feel I, a little I, bit like that. You know, I don't know. It's like yeah. So let's let's talk about that because yeah. there's there's a couple that come up next. Is uh, Orson Welles' Chimes of Midnight is a huge. Yeah, I wouldn't call that a no, that, cinema mass audience no, friendly. Th- it's but, a little more wedded, but it's very Orson Welles, right? Like yeah. it's like <laughs> Orson Welles. So, had so, his so this Sorry. is this yeah. is Orson Welles playing Falstaff. Yes. In a, a mass conglomeration of the Wars of the Roses plays, basically it's like Richard and the Second wives, all yeah. the way through to Henry the Fifth. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
so I can't remember how long it is, but it's quite long. It's and quite it, long. And, and it, but it pieces bits and pieces from those plays out to, to make, make Falstaff the main character. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. craft that narrative, which which again was a vehicle for Orson Welles. Exactly. It's yeah. it's you know like every Orson Welles thing where he's the center of attention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very much centered on look at how great I am. Yeah. And and it, I, we haven't seen it, but I, mm-hmm. I've seen a couple clips. And I'm like, yeah, looks like an Orson Welles movie. Yeah. So like it, it's it, it'd be fun to watch for sure. But um, that's kind of like. Its own little one-off. Uh, when you get to Zeffirelli, is when it get, really gets. Yeah, right? and that's that's where I, I kind of think of um, when you're not as deferential to Shakespeare as when you get to Zeffirelli. Which yeah. I'm not saying that those are not faithful adaptations, but what they do is, um, they're good adaptations. They're they're they're, they're interesting. Yeah. They're fun films to watch, but they yes. are they're very the, different. Here, here's how I'm gonna do it. Okay. These are films first, Shakespeare second. Yeah. Everything else to this point has been Shakespeare yes. first, film second. Yeah, I would agree with that. And or maybe a 50-50 split for uh, Olivier, where he's yeah. he's really kind of straddling the line there, yeah. based on what was happening in the 30s and 40s yeah. and 50s. But um, yeah, this is like, hey, teenagers love a good you know love story. So Let's here's serve up Olivia de Havilland. Yeah. You know, yeah. he wanted to. This is something you may not know. Yeah. Zeffirelli approached Paul McCartney to play Romeo in Romeo and Juliet, and he wisely turned him down. Yeah, even though he had a crush on Olivia De Havilland, but who didn't? Um, but anyway, yeah, that's uh, not Olivia De Havilland. Hussey. Olivia Hussey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though he had a crush on Olivia Hussey, yeah, yeah. Olivia De Havilland. They only married but yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, this was very much like. How do we get bums in seats yes. to see this? Yes. So we're going to have these grand sweeping vistas and it's going to be filmed in the most glorious color that you've ever seen. And it's going to be lush and it's going to be very visually appealing. And that's Taming of the Shrew um, and Romeo and, Romeo and Juliet are yeah. that to a T. And then they right? also, they're cast a certain way. Like you have the big names with Burton and, and Taylor and then uh, it's Hussey and what's the, who was the guy who played Romeo, I never remember his name, but they're both like gorgeous teenagers, right? Like, yeah, they, they, are, they're, perfectly... they are teenagers, exactly. Which they were is cast yeah. for the audience that was going to go see them, which was teenagers. Yep. It was the boomers who were like 13, you know, in the in the 10 to 18 age range right yep. then. And they've got money and they've got time and they, you know, they want they can get exposed to Shakespeare in unmodified format, the format yeah. that is film first. Yep. And it's uh, it's quite amazing to think that like this really kind of shifted the narrative about Shakespeare and film because it was before this it was uh, Olivier you know it was classical yeah. English kind of pomp and yeah. stuff and this is this is for an American audience like, well yeah and, that, and so that's the other thing is that you get a little bit more excising some of the the additional dialogue to yes. streamline it and make it more yeah well, um, we, we talked adaptable about, yeah we talked about uh, merchant or. Uh, Taming the, the Shrew after we watched it. Yeah. Uh, and we were like, yeah, they cut out some stuff, but it really doesn't detract from the main thrust of the Burton <laughs> and Taylor, exactly. you know, like interactions. Like that's where the, no, the core of the, it's just, of the story is. And that's where the core of the film is. And it matched up well. But they, but they focused more on the spectacle yeah. as opposed to the language. Yes. Right. It's like, yeah, the, the scene where they're rolling around in the hay yeah, and the, the top tail, of the barn, yeah, the tongue, tongue in your tail, tail yeah. scene. Um, that's that's going to stick out in your mind, or the the opening panoramic shot yes. of the prologue in in um, uh, Romeo. Romeo and Juliet, yep. or the scene in the crypt. Like these are the the point is to make it as visually appealing as possible, and it's it it definitely is more film. Yes. 
first. It's kind of it's it's leading up to the Berman Romeo and Juliet, like in a, in a strange way. Boz Lerman, you mean? Did I say Berman? You said Berman. I say Berman every time. I don't know it's why. Lerman. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but you know his his Romeo and Juliet, which is like spectacle parse spectacle you know yeah. it's it's just like it's pure visual and there's a couple lines of shakespeare thrown mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. um but it but it works still it yeah. works really well as a film right yeah. yeah um so yeah it's it's heading down that road you also start to see as we mentioned the impact of the royal shakespeare company which mm-hmm. had been founded um not long before this uh, yes um which is based out of stratford upon avon and really does focus like we said on that verse first kind of yeah. thing like like get let's speak it properly yeah. right um it's a it's kind of a different it well it is a very different approach to someone like Zeffirelli um where it's it is very much focused on what is the intention of the language itself mm-hmm. and um you start to see this is where that that film the film stage link kind of yeah, comes into play because yes. you start to see very popular stage actors like yep. Judy Dench and Ian Holm um Helen Mirren eventually I think yeah, shows up David there. Warner yeah. Yeah. um Ian McKellen yeah. other people who who were very much stage actors coming into play film yeah, versions else? of those same roles yeah. or similar roles that they played on stage you know at film or theater festivals or at their school or whatever mm-hmm. um which is yeah like an interesting shift kind of a a shift back but without it being stage production on film so it's not silent film we're just going to translate the stage production but you're taking some aspect of what makes a royal shakespeare company production of this play work yeah you're focusing on that language again and you're putting that into a film film yeah tradition yeah so it's kind of an interesting marriage yeah and then after after the 60s are over (laughs) Yes. And you arrive in the in the the seventies, which is which does have a bit of a dearth. Yeah. Um, and it really kind of ends kind of well not quite, but with uh Macbeth. Roman Polanski's Macbeth, yeah, yeah. Which is like just it it it's again a film first. Um I've yeah. never actually seen it, but it, it is very I can't believe you've never seen all of like oh. any of it. I don't think I've seen a single Polanski film in my whole life. Actually. Oh wow. Yeah. Which is Yes you have. Something. We watched The Fearless Vampire Killers together. I don't remember that at all. Well, we did on VHS, as a matter oh, of fact. Wow. <laughs> I've completely blocked it from my memory. But you, you have seen it, Lindsay. Yes. How, how would you describe um, that Macbeth? In a- it's, it's, a, it's a visual spectacle. It's yeah. a very violent. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I didn't like it. <laughs> I don't like don't Polanski's like films. Yeah. Yeah. I have, and there are moral issues with that, um, tied up with that. It's very much how I feel about uh, Woody Allen at the same time. Yeah. Um, but, I remember watching this. This was like the only version of the film that was really available, available to yeah, students when we kids, studied yeah. Macbeth in yeah. grade 11. So See, we, I don't know. I don't think we watched a version at all. I think we just read it in high school because I also did Macbeth in, yeah. in grade 11, but never saw it. Like, so. I think it's, it, it had high aspirations. And I think the, what, what Hindle does in his book is he kind of contrasts this version, which is kind of, um, cynical Mm. is maybe the word to use it's not like it's faithful to the text it's it's yeah it's bloody and gory and it's very much like a a scottish warlord film right um but it's not it's not deferential at all to shakespeare and like i remember i just remember the scene in in uh i'm sure it was the scene where uh, macbeth they bring his head in 
Oh, at the end of the at film. the end of the film. Yeah. And it's just like, I, I just You're remember just like, being oh. so turned off by it. Because I don't like violence in film. But no. but that's, that's you know, that's Polanski's vision of Shakespeare. And it, it was meant to do really well at the box office, but it didn't. Yeah. At the same time, I guess a year later, Charlton Heston did a version of Antony and Cleopatra. Oh, okay. Which was very much like, I, I, I haven't seen it, but I could just imagine whenever I picture Charlton Heston, Heston it's yeah. like either the NRA commercials he did... <laughs> back in the 90s or 80s or whatever or it's the Ten Commandments <laughs> yeah so yeah, it's like it. I, I think that's the kind of spectacle that Antony and Cleopatra was kind of uh, like but it was very highbrow it was very deferential and then he had Polanski which was kind of I don't want to say lowbrow but it was definitely more ironic mm. okay. an approach yeah and they, it just didn't reach audiences in the same way I think Part of the the issue is that when you get into when you get into the later part of the sixties and into the seventies, you had the influences of yeah, like the French New Wave, and you had um, like way more interesting film yeah. avenues to explore. That Shakespeare is like, I don't want to just do somebody else's work. I'm going to write original stories and do orig- tell original stories. Yeah, I always think of like Taxi Driver as being like yeah, the quintessential 70s right? film where it's just it's dark and it's of the time and it's it's just it's cinema. You know, it's exactly. like it's like Godfather and stuff where or it's like just like Chinatown. Yeah, or exactly. Like that that's where we were specific. in yes. the seventies. That nobody wanted to see Shakespeare. <laughs> exactly. And I think the real well, the yeah. real point of this is that Polanski's film bombed. Yeah. Like it was maybe critically I don't even know if it was yeah, critically well accepted, but it definitely didn't make back yeah, enough. It's in, yeah. in so like there was no incentive. Nobody else did anything. Nobody Literally, it, yeah. I think from 1971-72 until Brana in '89 with um, Henry V, there was nothing with the exception of the BBC. Yeah, um, productions. So, Do you so, want to talk about that yeah, right now? Let's talk about those now because it's yeah. it's kind of an interesting kind of side note here that they the BBC. Uh, kind of went on this tangent of just being like yeah let's let's do all the plays because and it was originally it was designed as like an educational service yeah really oh, okay. i mean it's not just like I mean, that makes sense i mean yeah and, and so they 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 gave a lot of rain there were i think 18 different directors yeah. on these 37 productions they did all of them including pericles which is probably yeah. not shakespeare um or at least uh, that's how they thought about they it did henry the eighth too yeah henry the eighth as well and two noble kinsmen yeah yep. wow. they've done yeah they did literally everything uh that was attributed in the folio and everything. okay so um yeah so it's but it because it was and it's over like a, a six or eight year period i think yeah i think 75 to maybe 10 years 75 to 85 or something I like think that it was 76 to 84 it might have been okay years. well either way but that's yeah, quite a while it, it's a long time yeah. right and um but like it was staggered oddly like uh the wars of the roses which is uh they did as henry the sixth one two and three right to richard the third mm-hmm. they did that over a month they released an episode every oh, week okay. you know and it was like, like a was, hollow crown spectacle exactly like, this is a television event exactly and it was all directed by uh the same person which yeah. we commented on yeah. as we were watching um so like the, the there was kind of like a wide variety and like the the guy i forgot his name i didn't write down his name but there was a guy who like quarterbacked this at the bbc okay. he left after two years he got fired and stuff oh, okay. he got pushed out so like they had to bring in even like the the creative mastermind was switching halfway through yeah. so it is it's very very uh uh wide-ranging and uh Hindle kind of talks about it, the, the the kind of broke down into three kind of broad categories okay. of, of um, approaches. There's kind of the the realistic and naturalistic, yep. which tried to like, oh, you're set in a forest like as you like it. We're gonna go to a forest and we're gonna film there, and it's gonna be just oh. like like it was meant to be. Like this is okay. the natural characters in their element, um, and 
you know, the production quality wasn't quite there in a lot of these yeah. things. So unless it was like an English castle, which they had plenty of, yeah. um, you know, it really kind of, it suffered a little bit because um, they just couldn't, they couldn't actually get that natural feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the pictorial one where the, the sets and the costume kind of uh, determine kind of a, a visual style for the thing. Um, Two Gentlemen of Verona, yeah. when we watched that one, was kind of of that ilk where it was like, it was Florence... Uh, or, or no, it was obviously Verona yeah, yeah. and Milan or wherever they were going. Um, but it was, it's very just, you get that sense through the colors and through the clothing and right. through this thing. And but it's, it's obviously on a stage. Yeah, and they don't, stage. they just try and obscure that yeah. or anything. They're just like, yeah, we're on a stage, but here, I'm going to bring or you like Verona. Henry VI part two, part yeah, one. Was kind where of there like was like, that. the French are coming and they attack and yes. then, but it's like. Actually, they just run in from off stage. Is that, that that's is that more similar? the stylized? Okay, one. That, okay. That's, that's the third category okay. that he called, which is like um, it, it was really just focused on. We're, again, we're very aware that this is this is there are on TV. Uh, yeah, it's on TV. Uh, there's there's only so much we can do, um, and it's it's kind of yeah, just focused on bringing in the the best parts of television, which is like saying, hey, we're in your living room now. Yeah, here's here's some here's some you know crappy kind of action sequences yeah. but the focus for all of them was always obviously on the text yeah. it was it was the language it was so they it doesn't seem to me like they cut anything. they they very minimally uh Hindle okay. said there were a few instances where they did but it was very very rare faithful yeah it was text. very faithful it was it was there to hey we're the land of shakespeare let's do every single that one of his sounds like for, the bbc <laughs> exactly well it's the bbc's mandate, yeah, right yeah. you know they're nationalistic so um and, and his other comment on this, which is interesting, was that, uh, you know, being on TV, it, it's very different from the experience of when you're when you're filming, you know, um, even Polanski's Macbeth, right. it's for the movie theater. Yeah. You have that experience of being in the dark room and everything. For this, it's for TV. The, the differences in how you're interacting with them yeah. and how they're filmed and how they're prod- broadcast, it's 480p or yeah. 360p or whatever. The, yeah. You know, the, there's a limited resolution. It's not, you're not going to get all the It's not details. widescreen. It's four yeah. by three. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. yeah. There's all these limitations that you kind of have to uh, account for when you were filming TV. Not so much now, obviously, with, you know, digital and yeah. everything. But, um, and the, the one of the directors, I think the one who did all the Henry ones, she was like, you know what, there's a limit. The, the best part about this is get the camera in the actor's face, let the actor do all the work. Okay. And we've I've kind of noticed that as we've watched mm-hmm. a couple of them. I'm like, the best parts that I always remember are just like someone doing a, nailing that soliloquy. Like, or right. the, um, in Two Gentlemen of Verona, forget her name now, but the woman, when she sees her right. lover crawling yes. out to the other man and she's heartbroken. Yeah. I'm like, that, that stuck with me. And yeah. it's just, it's a great job. So, that's kind of what you were getting in the 70s and the 80s was this yes. this limited thing. It was also broadcast on PBS in the in yeah. the US. Great performances. I do remember seeing yeah. that yes, on exactly. PBS. PBS. Um, but that that was kind of what you got and there was no interest in something bigger. And these ones, I mean, the production value is fairly low. They did attract mm-hmm. some big names. Uh, there were some famous actors who appeared in them. Yeah. Alan Mirren um, is in a couple. Bernard uh, Hill, I think, was in the Henry the Sixth ones. Okay, he played Theoden and yeah, Lord of the Rings, that's right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so there, there's still some talent there, obviously, yeah. but it was not, it was not the big productions, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, and then from there you move into the Brahma times. To be or not to be, that is the question. I, I hesitate to call it art house, but it kind of is art house that you get a little bit more, like you said, Taxi Driver, and these were played at like single screen or maybe two screen cinemas. Yeah, yeah. Then you had in the 80s, malls and yeah. uh, multiplexes. So all of a sudden there's there's like X 
exponentially more, maybe not exponentially, but quite a bit more real estate for yeah. film screens, for, for films to be presented. Yeah. And and that meant that movie studios, these were starting to conglomerate and you, mm-hmm. um, they have more money and they're going to start making more films. And so um, you have someone like, yeah, Kenneth Branagh who shows up. And, and at the time, I didn't know this, but he had a theater company the yeah, renaissance saying, theater yeah. company i think it was called and, and the mandate was to be faithful to shakespeare but accessible to audiences and and they they would do that in in hugely successful theater runs with big name actors yeah. like judy dench directing plays at like small community theaters and and across the aisles yeah, right yeah. and um and brown Br- was just like well let's just translate this to film and did it spectacularly with Henry V which came out in 1989 um, and really is that kind of Shot in the arm that the Shakespeare industry needed I guess to really push it well the film Shakespeare industry yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, to really fire it up and and get it going again as we head into the 90s and and it's interesting that one is is so noted for being the one that kickstarted because yeah. it is kind of a like i haven't watched it in a couple of years again um i mentioned this a couple episodes ago but i remember watching it and i'm just like this is a very 80s action flick oh it is but absolutely you know and it's it's like i mean i was reading some of the hindle's comments about how it you know it calls back to platoon in yeah. like the dirtiness of the, yeah. of the war time scenery and stuff like that and it's like so again it's borrowing from film yeah it, it, that's where it's interesting absolutely is. it's film first um, but I think Brana, I mean, we've, we've slagged on him in the past, but I, I will say <laughs> he does a very good job of film first, but with the spirit of Shakespeare intact yeah. throughout the process. He called it, um, life enhancing populism <laughs> is what he, he uh, kind like of that. injected his films with. So, yeah, okay. so yeah, absolutely. It's, it, there's a very commercial sensibility to Brana's filmmaking yeah. that um that taps into what is already popular and in 1989 yeah lethal weapon and yeah, yeah. like these are totally, these yeah. are the films that people want to see so let's do henry v but with you know explosions and and <laughs> blood and dirt yeah. and you yeah. know and then let's do much ado about nothing with you know sweeping romantic vistas and, and denzel. denzel washington yeah. and keanu reeves and oh, yeah, like it's, so it's it's uh <laughs> It's an it's a bold choice, Cotton. Let's see how it plays out for me. Well, it played, played out, out very great. well. Yes, it played we out very well. Well, for a, a period of time, it did. Um, and this leads to, like I said, this this renaissance of of Shakespeare films. So you get Trevor Nunn with Twelfth Night. Trevor Nunn, who is a Royal Shakespeare Company mm-hmm. um, founder. In 1996, you have Richard Longcrane and Ian McKellen doing Richard III in yep. 1995. Baz Luhrmann, Romeo Romans, and Juliet, yeah. 96. Julie Tamor's Titus Andronicus, or Titus, in yep. 1999. Yep. You also get all the adaptations that we haven't mentioned, the teen films that were done, which tap into a whole other cultural thing that's going on with you know millennials coming of age and yep. having money to burn and going to the movie theaters on Friday date nights, which we both did. Yep. Um, it's It's... It's kind of a golden time to be a Shakespeare fan, to be a Shakespeare film lover. Yeah. Or a film lover who may have a passing interest in Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. um, Because you get so much. There's just so many. Every time you look at a film, yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream and As You Like It and uh, Love's Labor's Lost, all from the 90s. And and with high production values and big name actors and, um, and 
pretty faithful adaptations and when they aren't faithful there's a good reason for it like with Titus or Richard yeah. III where Richard III which is just brilliant it transplants the whole film to 1930s yeah. um, and kind of imbues it with that fascist yeah, tone, you know which yeah. it totally has yeah. but yeah I mean it, it it made it relevant for a whole new generation yeah. and then totally takes from like you said the language and grammar of film um, in order to make Shakespeare really accessible and I think the, the really the pinnacle of that is is uh, Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, in which, terms of populism. In yeah. terms of yeah. populism, yeah. yeah, because and and actually, I think Hindle calls it the first postmodern Shakespeare film because yeah. it really does um, not only by by transplanting it to modern day, which hadn't been done as far as I can remember. Yeah, like straight up modern day. Yeah, like it, it's it seems like it's That's taking place in the same yeah. year that it was yeah. released. Yeah. Um, with modern music and uh, cars and guns and there's 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 kind of an interesting one-to-one but the spectacle is there you've got these big stars who are drawing in like I said those millennial dollars yeah. um, creating Leonardo DiCaprio really is a heartthrob <laughs> this yeah, is before Titanic right yeah so, exactly yeah um, yeah and and that's kind of that's kind of where the the century ends with with these spectacular uh Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. And then we get into, you know, the 21st century. Yeah, which are a little bit more stylish, a little looser adaptations. I think 2000's um, Hamlet. Yes. The t- which yeah. is with Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, yeah. Um, which is, uh, we haven't watched it, but we it's on our list. It. I think yes. we will be watching it when we do Hamlet. Yeah. Um, yeah, set in the 2000s, yeah. set in 2000, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and has this interesting commentary on commercialism, yeah. which I think is, again, just, a, just an different. interesting it's, choice. It's, yeah, and I think, like, and then after that, you get into The Merchant of Venice, which we talked about in our... Well, yeah, so there's episode. there's a little bit of a difference here because you get Brana doing, like, As You Like It, set in, yeah. like, feudal Japan, yeah. or 19th century Japan, anyway. Yeah. And then you also get, like, Merchant of Venice, which is pretty much a faithful retelling at least to the year that it was like 1595 venice right or um kurzel's macbeth which feels like it's meant to be like scotland super in the, realistic but then you have much yeah. to do about nothing by uh what's his name uh avengers dude oh uh, joss, whedon. joss whedon which we haven't seen but no. it looks like it's also modern day yeah so. it was like filmed in his house yeah yeah right? so like i i think the 20th, 21st century thus far has been devoid of any obvious themes in terms of how yeah. you approach Shakespeare. But I think that's, a more that, that might be the defining th- feature of 21st century Shakespeare is that we have this, as I said in my opening uh, monologue, the, the democratization of yep. the means of production, say. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody is going to have their own way of looking at it. So there is no one way of doing it. Um, I think I read somewhere that the, the first web series or, or web film that was broadcast whatever you call a webcast yeah. um, was of a Shakespeare production yeah. so I mean this is this is definitely something that from the beginning of the, the the century Shakespeare has been there but it's the way that people are interpreting it and playing with it they all have their own ways of doing it I, I read about I, it was in Hindle's book too a production of Midsummer Night's Dream where it was entirely children all children, ah, that's which cool. gets tiring after a while. He said <laughs> it's imagine. hard to watch a 
you know, five or six year old recite lines by rote that they yeah. don't really understand. understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea is interesting. Yeah. Right. Um, and I guess if anybody with a microphone and a camera can set up a YouTube channel, yeah. anybody can make their own version of Shakespeare. Yep. So maybe that's maybe that's something it's like everybody is everybody can do it. So everybody everybody's view is valid, which yeah. is. For good or bad, that's where we're at right now when it comes to content creation. So, I mean, look at us. We have a podcast. We have no business doing this. For I must tell you friendly in your ear. Sell when you can. You are not for all markets. Speaking of not having a business commentating on things, uh, next we're going to move into some compare and contrast. Yeah. Kind of just a quick discussion on some of the some of the plays to kind of show you know how things have changed and and just give a, a, a bit of a perspective on them. Um, these are ones that we've either both of us watched or um, we've watched independently. Um, and I wanted to start with the Richard the Thirds because okay. there's there's three kind of ones that we can talk about. There's Olivier fifty five, which we watched a couple months ago. Uh, there's the McCallan one from ninety five, uh, which is. Yeah, we watched a couple of years ago for mm-hmm. class, actually, I think. Yeah. Um, and then there's the Hollow Crown adaptation, which yeah. we both really liked. With Benedict um, Cumberbatch. Yeah, and, and I think it's just, it's it's interesting to see, like, um, we and we've touched on a lot of these points already, but, like, Olivier was, you know, again, in that in-between space of trying to adapt it into a, a film first. Yeah. I mean, he's still kind of stuck there, and his his kind of approach for Richard III, at least, was it's all about Richard III. Like, his character was absolutely central. There was there was no wiggle room. There was nothing... Um, to be it, fair, he's the main character. Well, so. and again, you know, <laughs> uh, another uh, golden era starlet uh, focusing on himself is not <laughs> unexpected. Um, but, it, it, you know, he had that kind of approach, and, and it worked in the sense of giving Olivier the best platform by, by which to, you know, I think of his death scene. Yeah. Where he's just like, his arm goes up, and it's yeah. so super dramatic, and the music yeah. swells, and it's like... This guy was a terrible tyrant. Why are we <laughs> celebrating this? Um, and then you go all the way to 95. Yes. And McKellen's uh, version was all about, you know, the the potential rise of fascism. and it Oh, was, not potential. Well, that in, was in, the, in this case, it yes. was the rise okay. of, of I, English fascism, right? Sure, yeah. And his approach was super different. There was, you know, almost no following the text. I, apparently he cut over 70%. Of the actual text sure. of Richard the Third, yeah, um, and you believe it when you think about it. His last line was like pulled from like two scenes earlier right. when he falls off the building and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's this sense. It's where, a it's a decision to focus on the style maybe over yeah the the source material. Yeah, and he, I think he uh, Hindle quoted him as saying like it's about I wanted to get into the political. Yep center of the play which is about this totalitarian Mm -hmm. force rising up and and swindling and and backstabbing and everything and i you know there's some other like super memorable scenes that really kind of hammer that home like when he starts off now is the winter of our discontent and then he's in the bathroom like finishing peeing and stuff and it's just like this guy is is totally on a different wavelength than olivier which is you know him and the backlit and and the hunch well yeah and and it's um when i think about it yeah, when I think about the the differences between the three, you know, I I picture yeah the now is the winter of our discontent scene in Olivier's version, which is delivered in a medium close up, yeah, um, straight to the camera with a you know received pronunciation kind yes, of yes. you know mode, yeah, um, compared with the surrealist angle of Ian McKellen's yeah. delivery, yeah, which. He had a lot to do with yeah. um, de- designing that. It was yeah. I was he, it his he, first film role? I don't 
It was an early film role. He wasn't yeah, a film he star. he wasn't a huge film star. He was a stage that. star. Yeah. But he had done this on stage and then yes. wanted to create it. Yeah. But yeah, to have that be a speech delivered to a, an adoring crowd, but then to have it be turned into kind of an internal monologue as he's peeing, <laughs> but there's like a seamless transition. There, There's a lot of surrealist elements to the 95 Richard III yeah. that um, really speaks to the way filmmakers were approaching film in the 90s yeah, yeah. and then bringing that into Shakespeare which adds another layer of like yeah how unhinged this guy is yeah. which which is just a different layer of character contrasting that to the the Hall of Crown version which is another 20 ish years removed yeah. 20 years exactly removed from um Richard the Third 95 yeah. and it's naturalistic yeah um but <laughs> Also kind of surreal when Benedict Cumberbatch delivers his lines to the camera and there's people literally walking between him and the camera. Yeah. I'm remembering a scene where he's on a staircase yeah. and like yeah. there are people walking by, but it's entirely yeah. unaffecting. It's totally unlike an aside or a soliloquy on stage, which is what you get with Olivier. Yeah. But it's not quite as surreal and yeah, it's, disjointed it's, as it's, Ian McKellen. They're all well. And it, part of it, I think, is because it is. It was made for TV. It's, sure, it's kind of borrowing TV uh, Tropes, language again. Yeah, yeah where yeah. it's it's you can have you know it's Fleabag and it's yeah, uh, yeah. Break you know the, the Office. Wall. You know yep. they're looking at the camera and yep. stuff, and it's you're kind of aware it's there and you're not you're not yeah. supposed to be aware it's there and and they kind of play with that line, jumping back and forth. And the morality, which we talked about in in our episode on. Um, when we watch this, the the making you a part of it because it's not. Mm-hmm. Anytime I see Olivia deliver a speech, it's it's very much removed from me. I'm watching a performance, but when Benedict Cumberbatch is talking to me, yeah. it's like holy shit, I'm complicit in this. Yeah. And so that's something that's very golden age of television. Yeah, you know, blurring the lines between audience and. Yeah, TV, to, to draw I them in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that, again, that's that's one of the strengths of television is that you're watching it in your house. Yeah, you, you are actively involved yeah. in choosing this thing and, yep. and staying watching it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, the next one I want to talk about was Hamlet. Sure. So yeah. we're just going to talk about the the three that came out in in the same de- in the same decade. Uh, there was the ninety Zeffirelli one, which yeah. we didn't talk about yet much. Yeah, I kind of forgot that Zeffirelli directed that one. Same. I didn't know um, until we looked at like, this is oh the my. Mel Gibson one. Yes. Which with is Glenn Close. with Glenn Close and very Oedipal. Um, <laughs> very. But this was Zeffirelli's attempt at 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 making an Oedipal yeah psychoanalytic Hamlet yeah. Um, um, and then there's the 96, yep. I think it was 96, Brana yep. um, one. And then there's the 2000 Almereda, yep. uh, which was the Ethan Hawke featured yeah. one. Um, and they're, they're, they're again, very, very different. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's the Zeffirelli one. It's kind of a continuation of his earlier work in a sense of like, again, let's, let's do this filmic thing for a mass audience with yeah. big name stars. Yes. Um, I think uh, it's when I read the, his description of it in the book, he said, I think it was a film critic quoted saying it was like lethal weapon and fatal attraction and dangerous liaisons, (laughs) which were all films like Mel Gibson and Glenn Close, but it's like a mashup of these films. And when you think about like Mel Gibson and Glenn Close are not that far apart in age. So like logistically father, mother, son dynamics are not there, but you're doing it because you want to see him bone, which is, I can't believe I got to see this in high school. I know we watched it. Well, but I think, I don't know. I don't. I know. I totally missed on that subtext entirely. I was. Oh just my like, god! My teacher pointed it out. 
<laughs> I know that Maybe for you a fact. A better English teacher than me because, like, we <laughs> Thanks, were just Mrs. like Merchant. Because <laughs> honestly, I was just like, oh yeah, this. I was watching it for like to be or not to be. You right, know, like that right. was kind of like where my focus was, but that's not where Zeffirelli's focus really no. was. And it, it no, he was doing something across. that was very much uh, a, um, a, a psychological examination of of, of, Hamlet's of Hamlet brain, yeah. which Brana is. Brana is almost kind of, but but when I think of the Brana version, I think of it. The comparison to me is with Olivier. It feels mm. much more if you're going to take these three versions, which again we haven't watched the Almereda version, so maybe yeah. we can't really comment yeah, on that. Too much, but. but if 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 there was one that was going to feel very stagey, yeah, it was going to be the Brana one, yeah. you know, which. Uh, but to me, I don't. know. I think See, it's because the stage, the the set decoration is so vivid and, and so elaborate, yeah. and and it feels like a 1950s film production in that way, which would be very much up Brana's alley in an interesting way because he still does make it accessible. There's still the actors he got to to play. Yeah, and, and I mean, he gives the text time. I mean, that's, yeah. that is by far the most telling thing about the Brana version. It's four hours long. Yes. It is the full uh, quarto, second quarto, I think, edition. Yeah. It is everything. Yeah. And he, he gives his, his characters and this, their psychology room to breathe. And he, you know, he, 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 li- it's like Lord of the Rings, essentially, in the sense that, like, hey, we want to do the story. Let's do it right. Let's do it over a big chunk of time. He yeah. could have released it in two movies, sure. possibly, and, and actually perhaps done better. Um, but it, it is like it is the fullness of Hamlet. Like he he's uh, he's quoted in in Hindle's book as being like, I want this was the project I want to do yeah. since before Henry V. Yeah. But I had to prove to Hollywood that I could that make I my could money back. Um, and I don't think this actually did make his money back because it was a huge yeah. project. So much money. Uh, it was filmed in like this huge palace in England, uh, where apparently Winston Churchill grew up or something like that. Okay. I don't know. Um, but it was. Uh, yeah, it, it's a crazy, crazy undertaking. Um, and I, I remember when I watched it, I was like, yeah, this is this is the full handle. Like, this yeah. is like as Shakespeare would have wanted to see it if he could see it on mm-hmm. film. That was kind of my thought at the time. Um, and then when I saw that the Ethan Hawke Hamlet was coming out, I, at the time I wasn't interested because I was still kind of a kid. 15. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, after I'd watched the, because I watched the Brando Hamlet later on, I think we were in university. I'm almost certain that's when we watched it. Anyways, uh, after that, I was like, oh, we should see if there's that Ethan Hawke one was any mm-hmm. good. And I looked up and it was like 110 minutes. I'm like, how? How right. do you go from like that to this? Well, that's that's the thing. I think, you know, Brana is very much, and oh, I'm not going to hold back. I'm not a fan of <laughs> Kenneth Brana. I think he's <laughs> fine, but I think that he's very self-important and self-involved. And and that's where the fact that he stars in every single one of his yes. movies, yes, I think and, so. Uh, I guess there's no, I don't have a real problem with that because that's very much Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote roles for himself too, I'm of course, sure of yeah. it. But, um, but the fact that, that, yeah, there's just something about his productions that feel very self-indulgent. Yeah. And a four-hour long Hamlet is, is yes. yes. And not necessary when you really drill down to the essence of the story well, the Mel Gibson Hamlet does that. Does a fine job, yeah. The the Ethan Hawke version at 110 minutes does something very Apparently interesting. Say yes. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do the story of Hamlet well yeah. in a filmed version 
at two hours and that's there's nothing wrong with that so that's that's why i just that's why i compared it to olivier because it's It's like a star vehicle for this person who is going to direct it and 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 star in it and do the whole thing and very pompously do the whole thing um but but i think of all the people who i want to do that it'd probably be brana like yeah and because he's he does treat the the subject matter with a certain degree of reverence reverence which i mean for the next comparison you have macbeth i thought we were going to talk about romeo and juliet but yeah we could if you wanted do it let's let's do a quick romeo and juliet well i was just going to say that roman polanski doesn't have that reverence for the yeah yeah. which kurzel does if you want to do a comparison between the two i think there's there is um a realism to both of them Mm -hmm. that you can say is similar but I think there's... Well, the ultraviolence and stuff, yeah. There's a, a difference. I think Kurzel, Kurzel's version was different enough that, that you could tell that there was thought being put into what I, what story I'm actually trying to tell. Yeah. Um, which there was in Polanski's version as well. But I think with Kurzel's, there was... Um, it was more coherent in the well, story that came out? Yeah, kind of maybe. And, and I don't know. I don't know. Because that, that was my big comment about... Uh, Macbeth's version or the the 15 Kurzel version was that yeah. it's very concerned with the psychology of these two yeah. characters it's yeah. really just about two characters everybody else is fluff and background yeah. and driving motivations the witches everything is all just like here push do do this next thing that's yeah. going to push your brain into a certain headspace and I think that's I think what it Shakespeare works. would well, have yeah, I, when intended. you read the text you're kind of like yeah this is about two people going crazy mm-hmm. after they've done some very terrible things to people who yeah. they loved yeah um and I think yeah, the the fifteen version does a great job of that. I because I haven't seen Polanski, I'll, I'll assume it didn't. Well, and I when well, it's, uh, it's an was action film. It, it's it's kind of yeah. a, a, an action thriller horror okay. kind of because that's Polanski's bread and butter. Yeah, that's yeah. what he does. Yeah. So it's it's going to be shocking and it's yeah. going to be. And when Hindle said like he he didn't care at all, like he he cut out most of Lady Macbeth's lines about yeah. any of thing that gave her psychology. I thought yeah. that's what made Kurzel's version so Absolutely. amazing was was giving what's her name uh marion codelard codelard uh so much room to just like explore this character who doesn't have that many lines right. but you know she just evoke evokes such an amazing yeah uh breadth uh behind this character that mm-hmm. you can kind of latch on to um yeah i i can't imagine like i i really don't want to see the plans <laughs> like nobody it's has said it. it's, it's like oh it's great it's worth like, it to see maybe we could watch like the it, it's the, the key scenes. I think you would get the, <laughs> get the, the main gist of thrust. it. Okay, fair enough. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So this week's ancient bickerings, which maybe is is more of a callback to our Bix Riddick predicts from back yeah. in the Twin Peaks days of our podcast. Yeah. Um, we're kind of we're kind of wondering where is we've we've talked about the last hundred and twenty years of Shakespeare on film or Shakespeare on screen. Mm-hmm. Um. Where are the next 120 years going to go? Yeah. And what what are our predictions for where Shakespeare will end up? Aiden, do you want to go first? Do you sure, have an idea? I, yeah, I can okay. go first. I think uh, I think it'll be a very dispersed kind of approach to Shakespeare. I think um, you know it'll be fan made. It'll be YouTube. It'll be you know it'll be something that's 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 generated without the the full wherewithal. 
and then at the opposite end, I think big budget studios will eventually come back. So I think we're already starting to see, I think, you know, people talk about how Disney and Marvel dominated or dominating mm-hmm. uh, movie making and creative processes everywhere. I think that, I think that process is coming to an end. I think there's going to be a role for Disney and Marvel movies. Um, but I think that was kind of a 2010s kind of thing. I think this new era, um, there's going to be lower budgets, um, but more options available for okay. movie And I think things like Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these other ones that are building, that are filming movies, mm-hmm. they're doing huge television series right now. They also do movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there'll be more opportunities for that. So I think I think you're going to see a huge, huge uh, range of what's coming in the future. Okay. I think it'll be big budget productions with huge stars and it'll be uh, zany one-offs that, you know, six film students in in, in Copenhagen come together <laughs> and, and film something that's like, wow, out there and it gets three million views on YouTube. And, okay. and that's the next thing that comes up. You know, like, okay. I think I think it'll just be, like we've been saying all along, it will follow wherever film generally goes. It'll yeah. be TikTok Shakespeare. Yeah, you know, you know? that's not a bad... <laughs> You know, like I was joking about it earlier, but I I really think like, um, A, if people are still uh, exposed to Shakespeare early on, and even if a small proportion of them fall in love with it, um, you know, like there's, there's Shakespeare on... Uh, Yoda Shakespeare, the the guy who wrote the, oh yeah the, the Star, Star Wars, Wars as Shakespeare in Dasher yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that's that's something that's that's unique to our time period yeah. and the fandom world of Star Wars right. and stuff you know right. it's it's this unique spinoff so I think I think it'll just follow that I mean I hope that in 120 years Shakespeare is still oh I'm sure super relevant yeah. I I don't see it's going anywhere no. I mean the the one thing I will say is that in the last 200 some years uh english has been the lingua franca of the world right with the british empire yeah. and the american empire uh this is before the 2020 election so yeah. uh, we don't really know what's going to happen to the american empire but if if it does fall apart and and you know there's, there's the a chinese power vacuum, empire well exactly like there might be english might be less uh universally looked upon and there might not be any more foreign films that that draw from shakespeare quite as often as they have in the last well we've already seen that quite frequently with the way that hollywood caters to the chinese film market so i mean um but the good thing is that shakespeare is worldwide respected worldwide so i mean um i don't see it going completely going away but but yeah but i i mean i think that would be my only my only a caveat on this is that it might not be as relevant. I think, and I think we are a little tainted, Lindsay, you and I, by the fact that we grew up in the 90s yeah. when this whole resurgence uh, led by Brana was, was kind of taking of place. Taking, yeah. yeah, so I think it might be... But I, I will admit, when you when you said TikTok Shakespeare, I, I got a really great idea for a lesson plan where you have like, you know, duet this, the the <laughs> the, uh, the, the meeting scene yes. between Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah. You know, I think that could be fun, or the yeah. balcony scene. Yeah, or Beatrice and Benedict. Know? Beatrice and Benedict yeah, do a and do a yeah. one minute long TikTok of yeah. Beatrice and Benedict. That that could be really fun. But uh, you know, we, I I agree with you. I think that having you know wherever technology goes, if Shakespeare kind of follows that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in that vein, I think immediately just thinking about you know the pandemic and and the restrictions on things. I I, I think generally. If this goes on for much longer, I think we'll see a resurgence in animation because it can mm. be done in virtual or at least distance yeah. um, capacities. And there that's were, something that Shakespeare animated has not really been done. Yeah, I mean, there was apparently I was looking through Wikipedia. There was a I think it was a French okay. series of it was like all the Shakespeare plays oh, cool. in like 22 minute 
versions for oh, for neat. kids. I think yeah. so. It was well. I mean, that's how I was first introduced to it. Was like. I don't know if you remember like Great Illustrated Classics, yeah, like yeah. that book series. Yeah. And there was, it was a Midsummer Night's Dream and it was like a picture book. And yeah. I took it off from the library. I was probably six. That was the first yeah, exposure really exposure I ever had to Shakespeare. Yeah. So, I mean, not that I'm like, get them while they're young, but <laughs> I think animation provides, after having seen um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse mm-hmm. and the, the, the fascinating things that can be done with animation and that are being done with animation... I would love to see animation kind of take over and and maybe see more of that there. I also think that we're going to see like technological aspects of Shakespeare, like this this resurgence of um, filming stage productions. Yeah. If you had like a virtual reality type situation where anybody with a VR headset could watch a play at the Globe. Yeah. Like that would be cool, just, right? Yeah. You know, you just you just pick your play and you you put on your headset and you can turn your head. Yeah, and look you and can. Watch and, yeah, yeah, you can see what the sky is doing. You can see what the person sitting next to you picking their nose or yeah. eating their chestnuts. Yeah. Like that's all something that I could see happening um, as a way to keep theaters afloat because of things like this pandemic that um or even just to expand the audience, even just the expand audience, the audience you know? absolutely yeah. into yeah. realms that you know ways to make theater more accessible to yeah. a wider array of people yeah um one other one i want to jump yeah. in because you just prompted me with a great idea there yeah uh there are more video games featuring yeah that would be uh, cool i mean there there is uh to be or not to be which is a Shakespeare game that I've I think I've purchased, but I've never actually played because uh, it's not Steam sales. Of course, they get you. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's like a kind of choose your own adventure ish type. Ah, you took of the idea right out of my head. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, there, there's that, and like um, even just like video game storytelling that mirrors uh, Shakespearean stories, like Lion King did, and and other popular storytelling yeah. methods. You know. Yeah. Um, I think th- those are other avenues that yeah. haven't been fully explored yet that that maybe in the future the other the, the last one that i wanted to say is um related to um kind of a postmodern or whatever comes after postmodern like fracturing the story a little bit more mm. and telling it from other perspectives like ophelia yes. the film version of ophelia Which that came out yeah. um a couple years ago with daisy ridley as ophelia mm-hmm. where it's told from her point of view or um even thinking about uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, yes. right? Or um, the the Midsummer Night's Dream version from two two thousand nineteen ninety nine yeah. ninety eight, okay, with Kevin Klein as Bottom, where like yeah. Bottom kind of becomes an character. interesting yeah. character, yeah. like things like that, where you look at maybe minor characters or secondary characters as the entry point into the story rather than the main character, mm-hmm. and I think that pr- could provide an interesting way into and around um the themes of the play and i could see that being something that um that filmmakers and and uh actors and other creative types will lead into as we kind of along the same lines as like um what you said with like a a wide array of approaches i think that a wide array of array of um literary perspectives will also be included there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. So what are we doing next, Aiden? Next up, we have The Merry Wives of Windsor. Oh, okay. We're going to finally complete the Falstaff uh, trilogy of hilarity, yep. I hope. Never seen it. Never nope, watched never it. Read never it, read it. Never read it. Never touched know anything it. about it. Don't know anything I'm about it. I'm assuming it's wives who are happy in the town of Windsor. 
that's that's some just yep not windsor ontario Lindsay, of course that's the only windsor that matters okay yes right across from detroit all right (laughs) the happiest place on earth absolutely um and then following that we're gonna have uh something we're calling selling shakespeare yeah it's it's about you know the the marketing of this bard character that we've uh we've helped sell i think yeah (laughs) in our podcast people have for many 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 years yeah yeah and Um, then after that we're going into uh henry v yeah i'm looking forward to that that'll that'll wrap up our history sections there and uh we'll be moving on so uh looking forward to all that that this was a really fun episode yeah Yeah, i think we talked quite a bit yeah quite a long time this may be our longest episode in a while so but it was um, fun but i hope people like that you're listening and and are enjoying the conversation um and we'd love to hear like again we we kind of mistimed it by we should have had james on for this uh podcast but i think uh maybe we'll send him our episode and tell us ask him to tell us where we went wrong and yeah absolutely he can can provide he he can do he can do an episode of his podcast fixing yeah fixing all the shit that we said wrong because again neither one of us has taken any film studies courses which is hilarious because i taught film studies last year i taught film studies without having taken any well film i mean studies. i think our listeners know we're not film experts based no, on but, our discussion but of still, lynch and everything else uh, it's still yeah. fun to to kind of look at shakespeare and film and, and it was really interesting i think the, the takeaway for me was that they're the industry the film industry is so tied up with shakespeare and i think you're going to find that with any new like i said the internet came out and the first thing that anybody webcast was a was a play was a Shakespearean play like there's a reason that that is the case and so it's just it was just cool to kind of break it down a little bit and see how these two industries coexist yeah You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.